Good morning, Community Church, and it is so good to be with you today. Thank you, Pastor Brenda, for those prayers. Ivan, Tina, Matthias, thank you for opening your home and being a part of this community. We are in the This Is Us uh, series right now, and I'm going to step aside so you can actually see the artwork that we have that advertises this series. Now, they're going to zoom in on this so you can see um, that these are actual photos and people um, of our community. Now, you might not be able to see it. You have to squint and look real close. I wish we were in person so you could see it a little bit more clearly. But this is us. This is us in our community. And we've celebrated 25 years of journeying together as a community. And as a community, we've been through so many things, right? We were started as a church during the handover. The church has walked through SARS. The church has walked through different places of worship around the city, Um, Many pastoral changes over the years. We've definitely walked through social unrest and now two years of pandemic. We will get through this community church. And we know we can get through this because of God's faithfulness. He is a faithful God to us on this journey. And so uh, many blessings to you today um, as we celebrate Chinese New Year this week. Um, I know it's a muted time of celebrating, but do celebrate. Find ways to responsibly celebrate um, in whatever way that you can, because there is much joy that we can partake in, even in this time. Well, let's um, jump into our passage today. This passage um, comes from Luke, and we're looking at This Is Us, love people this week. So let's dig into this famous passage that you have probably heard if you've been in church for very long. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit life? So this is an expert in the law, expert in um, religious law. He, he's a lawyer, and he's asking a very common question that somebody would ask a rabbi, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And eternal life here isn't so much heaven, but how do I live in the kingdom of God? How, how do I participate in that? And it's common for a rabbi to turn the question around and to ask the student a question in return. And this is that question here, verse 26. Jesus says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And the lawyer answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, remember last week we were looking at Matthew and Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he responds with the same answer. It's the same answer. Jesus sees these as connected. What is God's greatest commandment for us? And what is life in the kingdom to be governed by? Love of God and love of people. This is at the heart of our vision. Jesus carries on in verse 28. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is a bit of a setup, right? You have to be careful when you're asking this type of question to Jesus. Now, Jewish teachers usually referred to neighbors as fellow Israelites. He's asking, how far does my love have to extend What are the limits to this command of love my neighbor? 
So Jesus responds with a story. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, priests were supposed to maintain religious purity, right? And avoid impurity. So touching a corpse, they're not sure if he's alive or dead, would have brought that impurity to him. Now, he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he would have been leaving sort of his ceremonial duties. So there's more of a margin for him to get involved. He, he could have still done that. Then we see a Levite and they're sort of a notch below the priests. They had temple responsibilities. Um, they were responsible for the liturgy, policing the temple area. They didn't have to follow as strict as rules as the priests, but they were still called to purity. Now, the audience is expecting the next person to be sort of an ordinary Jew. So you've got priest, Levite, they're expecting him to say, and then a fellow Jewish traveler came by. And yet this is what Jesus says in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. This would have shocked the listeners. They were not expecting Samaritan. They saw Samaritans as half Jewish, right? As half breeds. They, they were sort of the, the children of Jews who were in exile marrying Gentiles. They had different religious practices with Yahweh. They were not great friends. In fact, they were enemies. Jews would try to travel around Samaria, um, even though going through Samaria would be the more direct route. But what does this Samaritan do? It says he sees him, and we always know that's a clue to the heart, right? He sees him with his eyes and what does he do? He's moved, his heart is moved with compassion. Verse 34, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, which were, had cleansing properties, right? Then he put a man on his, on his donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So what does the Samaritan do? Right? This could be a whole sermon on stewardship, right? Um, it's not going to be, but look at the Samaritan. He takes of his time, his resources, his own safety. He puts him on his donkey. He gives his money to take care of this person. See, the Samaritan sees the wounded traveler approaches him, his heart is moved, and then he uses his resources and opens himself up for even more expense, depending on how much care this person needs. He uses what God has given him to meet the needs of those around him. Now, Jesus turns back to the lawyer and asks this in verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. This is so interesting because the lawyer couldn't even say the word Samaritan. He couldn't call him by who he was identified with. He's either so biased against him, so offended by the point of Jesus' stories that he can't say it, right? But what does Jesus say? Jesus told him, go and do likewise. 
Now, this is a famous story. Many of you have probably heard it. Christians and non-Christians alike know this term, Good Samaritan. If you Google memes, Good Samaritan, you'll see so many things come up. Don't do that right now, but let me show you a few of what came up for me. This first one, I'd like to see you love my neighbor. This is a congregant telling the pastor as they're leaving, right? You don't know who my neighbor is. We get these types of memes, you know, Jesus sitting around with his disciples, giving this teaching, and then the disciples say, what if they are of a different religion or race? I'll start over from the beginning, Jesus says. Again, this love your neighbor as yourself. What if they're of a different race? Yes, even if they ask stupid questions. So I'll let you figure that one out. Um, And so we know this story is familiar, but we also know that it is challenging to do it. There's many layers to this story. See, the lawyer is expecting the next person in the story to be a Jewish person, right? And if it had, this Good Samaritan story would be about, you know, the religious leaders and condemning maybe their hard-heartedness, condemning their, you know, putting um, their religious observances over compassion. And that's certainly part of the story, but Jesus is pushing this to a deeper level by bringing in a Samaritan. See, the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus actually doesn't answer that question. Instead, he asked, who acted neighborly? Who loved? In verse 36, he says, who was the neighbor to this man on the road. He doesn't actually answer, who is my neighbor? He says, who acted neighborly, who loved? See, the lawyer's wanting to close the circle, wanting to limit, how far does this command go to love my neighbor? Jesus has nothing to do with that, right? He says, there is no limit to that. There are no borders. We should be loving everyone, When can I stop loving is what the lawyer wants to say. And Jesus doesn't give him that answer. The lawyer wants to know, who am I obligated to love? Who can I avoid? Who can I walk around? Notice the priest and the Levite, they obviously see the man, but their hearts are hardened. They don't have compassion. They actually have to walk around him to avoid him. See, Jesus challenges our assumptions in this parable to who is my neighbor. But don't we, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, I know for me, don't we also maybe ask that same question? How far must my love extend, Jesus? Who is my neighbor? What about those with different beliefs, different political views, different opinions on vaccinations and quarantine times, different ideas on how to get control of COVID and how to live with it? What about those who have offended me? What about my child's teacher who doesn't seem to like my child? What about the person who isn't as detailed-minded as me? What about the person who is sloppier than me? What about my roommate who is annoying? What about my life group member who dominates the conversation? What about the taxi driver who honks at me and my bike? 
That's more of a personal one there, right? We each probably have people that are difficult to love. And we might not even ask Jesus, who is my neighbor? We just put them in that category of non-neighbor. I am not obligated to love. I won't love them. And we bypass the heart of Jesus's teaching in the gospel to love our neighbor Now, it's not easy, right? Remember when we went through the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, the Kingdom Now series, where Jesus talks about what is life like in the kingdom. And he says, you you have heard that it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And then what does Jesus say? Gives one of his toughest teachings of all time. But I say, love your enemy. See, as followers of Jesus, we don't get the option to put somebody in the category of non-neighbor, As we were sharing before, we had a group of about 40 uh, CIS kids here um, several weeks ago, and we talked about this loving your enemy. And one of the students said, um, you know, why would Jesus say that? Why would we want to do that? Well, it gets at the heart of our belief system, right? That everybody is created in the image of God, that everybody has value that how we want to be treated is how we should treat other people, even people we want to put in the non-neighbor category. See, this challenges our beliefs about what we think of other people, about what we think about God. Last week, we we shared, we had Eugene and Mike talk about Christ-centered, one of our values. And the idea is that Christ is at the center. We want to be moving towards him and we want to remove barriers from people encountering Jesus Christ. We want to remove barriers from loving our neighbor because I think we all want to find limits to what that is. See, the lawyer believes Samaritans were non-neighbors. They worshiped Yahweh differently than they did. We see a little snippet of this in the gospels when Jesus is at the, the well with the woman and she brings up this, you know, challenge of don't the Samaritans worship here and the Jews say this and Jesus doesn't enter into that debate rather he loves this person and so we are challenged by what assumptions we have if the belief system that you have makes you more fearful anxious self-righteous to those to those around you then you're not walking in the way of Jesus of loving your neighbor Now, I've had my beliefs challenge a number of times in my journey, and we should always be reflecting on who we are and what we're holding on tightly to. I didn't grow up in a church that acknowledged all of the spiritual gifts, in particular speaking in tongues and prophesying. I went to a church that did not have women in leadership, in pastoral offices especially, and I thought my views were biblical. I felt justified, and I felt self-righteous in those. And I definitely justified putting people into the non-neighbor category. If you were a fellow Christian and you believed in those things, I definitely thought less of you. Thankfully, God was not condemning of me, even though I was condemning of others. He was kind to me. He began to change my heart. So at first, how did that change? I saw people that had those different beliefs about gifts, about women in ministry. And I saw that they exhibited Christ-likeness, that they exhibited faithfulness, fruit of the spirit. 
I could no longer put them in this category of, of condemnation. I went back to scripture and studied more. I had to recognize the biases that I was approaching the text with, with the tradition that I grew up in and the biases of that tradition. And I had to be able to humble myself and admit I might be wrong about this. See, if your belief causes you to love your neighbor less, then you are missing the gospel of Christ. It's as simple as that. See, God invites us into this upside down kingdom. In this new kingdom, a person who was once despised, the Samaritan is now the hero of the story. The priest and the Levite are acting according to custom, to their interpretation of the law of scripture. They thought they were justified in walking around this person. Their behavior is consistent with their beliefs. Ritual holiness was important to them and touching this person would have made them unclean. But Jesus condemns this approach over and over again. In contrast, the Samaritan's actions are motivated by his compassion, by seeing and being moved and then moved into action. We see Jesus do the same over and over and over again in the gospels. Instead of being afraid of touching the person who is unclean, what happens when Jesus touches people? He makes them clean. He restores and he redeems. He turns this whole religious system upside down. Friends, that is transformational living. Last week, we talked about this transactional versus transformational in our relationship vertically with God. Do we pray, you know, do we follow God because of what he does for us, right? Or do we enter into this transformational dynamic where it's not give and take, God, you did this for me, so I'll do this for you. And now, now that I'm doing this for you, God, you better do this for me. Now, all of us have done that. I've done transactional actional relationship with God. And it's easy to fall back into that at any given point. But God invites us into a different reality with himself, but also with one another. Do we only love to those who can love back? See, it isn't insignificant that this traveler was stripped of his clothes. See, he is naked. He doesn't have any identifying markers on him of who is he? Where is he from? Is he somebody that I should be obligated to love? Is he somebody that can do a favor for me back when he recovers? And so we see the Samaritan man enter into that because he, he knows he might not get anything back from this person. That's not his motivation to have this transactional type of relationship, but to love in a transformational way. See, to love is to risk. It takes risk to be the good Samaritan. He risks a bit of his safety, right? He risks his time, his resources. See, he sees and his heart is moved into action. Every time we see, we have a choice to make, right? Do we have a soft heart? And then think through what's the wisest way to act, right? There's wiser ways to act, right, than reckless ways. So it's good to think that through. Or do when we see, we quickly justify not getting involved, walking around. So who is your neighbor, church? 
as a church, it's been wonderful. It was wonderful to see that slideshow of so many of the ways we get involved with our neighbors in Hong Kong, whether it's the elderly, whether it's the prisoner, whether it's the marginalized or the disabled. As a church, we have a long history of getting involved with our neighbors here in this city, coming alongside, being the hands and feet. And I want us to continue to do that. And I want all of you to be involved in this as well. If you haven't been a part of our outreach ministries, I know COVID has been a little more challenging to have these consistencies, but look at our outreach page and we'll, we'll always be updating that with things that you can get involved with. But also on a personal level, who is your neighbor? Who has God brought into your life? Who's been there for a long time that's difficult to love? Who is the person who might be there for a short time? See, this is the same category of people, those close and those far, those that we've been journeying with long-term and those who might be a short-term encounter because Jesus doesn't allow us to move anybody into the category of non-neighbor. So during the rest of the service, I, I just invite you to be thinking of that. Who is the neighbor to me that I can be loving to on this week? Who might God bring into your life? Who's already there and it's hard. It's hard to love. And I know, I know it is. There are certain people in our lives that are difficult to love. So I invite you to into a conversation with the Holy Spirit. God, I, I just pray that your spirit is at work in our hearts and our minds this week, but also with our vision, God. As we go out this week, God, whether it's the person in the grocery store checking us out, person in the post office, a colleague, a family member, a roommate, someone in our life group, God, I invite your spirit to be at work in every one of us, that you would give us your eyes to see, God. That you would give us your eyes and your heart, that our eyes would see and we would be moved to compassion, not to self-justification, God. God, work in us, I pray. Amen. Now, we continue with our value series this week. Um, each week, we're going to be hearing stories from people in our community, and this week is on authenticity and what we lift up for that, what is authenticity is we recognize that we all have faults and imperfections. So we value and seek to create a culture of openness, a vulnerability and warmth that is marked with grace and forgiveness. Let's hear some of those stories now. Good morning, brothers and sisters. I've been asked to share what being authentic means to me. Um, to me, it means being real about all the messy parts of my life and not pretending that I know what I'm doing or that I've got everything put together uh, when I really don't. Uh, it's being vulnerable and um, showing the parts of myself that I wouldn't normally show. Uh, so this can be quite terrifying, of course, because there is always a risk of and fear of uh, judgment, ridicule and rejection. Uh, in my life, I play multiple roles of parent, daughter, sibling, co-worker, teacher, boss and fellow parishioner. And in each role, I wear a mask suited for that role. And I keep the other aspects of myself mostly hidden 
Um, this is because those aspects may not be well received. So being authentic means not having to wear any kind of masks. Just like when um, with God, who sees everything, masks are useless. So in prayer, I bring my jumbled mess of emotions, hopes, and fears, knowing that God, who already knows everything, um, he gets me. Uh, my life group family also provides this safe space for me to unmask, um, where I can share parts of my life that I, oh, of myself that I would not normally share in other, uh, in my other roles. So it's, um, yes, it's quite liberating. So that to me is being authentic to, to be quite real about what is really happening um, and not trying to look like I know what I'm doing. Thank you for listening. Hi, my name is Matt. I've been with CCHK coming to three years and I'm with the men's group. Pastor Wade asked me to share a little bit about authenticity. I found this actually really difficult because the word can mean so many different things to different people. But here are maybe some loose thoughts on what it's meant to me in the last couple of years. Quick story, before coming to Hong Kong, I was with someone for 13 years. We were married for seven. We separated about four years ago before I moved to Hong Kong and we were actually effectively divorced this month. So the last few years have been a time of rebuilding, slipping back, rebuilding, and grieving at the same time. With this context, I think of authenticity as said in relationship because we really exist only in relationship to others. And the cross is quite a nice metaphor here, relationship with others, relationship with God, and relationship with self. I think true authenticity is a journey to your best self and found in a place where, in a way, you're in the right balance with others, with God, and with yourself. So taking relationship with others first, I always find it frustrating when anyone says just be yourself because we have multiple selves. I love the man in the Gerasenes who says, I am legion because we really are legion. We have different sides and demons and part of the journey to becoming our best selves is integrating these different parts. With other people, authenticity is challenging because I want to be liked, so I'm anxious. Uh, at, at the same time, I'm avoidant and I can be vulnerable when I've prepared it and curated my image to be presented in a way I can control but not necessarily to be in so-called liminal space where my thoughts and emotions are raw and I'm processing while I'm talking. And yet I think the best growth is when you make the effort to really be in those honest spaces in conversation with someone you know and trust. And of course, we have to respect our friends and their readiness in that moment to engage. So I think part of the journey of finding oneself is really to find those people and spaces where you can express different parts of yourself. One thing that's good about being in the desert is that it strips you of your vanities. A lot of things are just not that important and you do have a chance to think about what you really care about and you come to a point where you say, it's okay if I fail at this, um, since I've already lost everything anyways, this is what I really care about and that's actually not a bad place to be. Whoever saves his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The other thing about authenticity with yourself is that you have to understand your own defense mechanisms and how you try to avoid or escape difficult emotions. For example, I've been using second person, but obviously I'm talking about myself. So my defense mechanism is to intellectualize everything. And for many years, actually, man, I had no vocabulary for emotions or ability to even feel my own emotions, let alone my partners. And at other times, I might just use humor or stay really busy uh, to avoid something. So then you get down to, okay, what's really going on here? What's really driving my behavior? And that's actually a really important question. Am I acting in reaction to something that's triggered me emotionally some insecurity or fear, or am I acting out of love? 
And one big part of the journey of authenticity for me, I think, is learning to recognize when I'm actually overwhelmed by something and to recover quickly so that I'm not hurting the people around me whom I love and who love me and I can return to my better self. When Nebuchadnezzar was an animal for seven years, what human ties did he unknowingly destroy? So, God. With God, I feel like there are times and there were times when he just didn't show up. We both gave our blood to the marriage and when it ended, I don't think we ran out of love. I think we ran out of energy because we were too tired to keep fighting the different things in life that were pulling us apart. There was a lot of love left and we just couldn't hear each other and receive it. So that gives grief and anger still. And there's a lot of big life questions that for me remain unanswered, like where is work going? Where is home? Who will I be with? But at the same time, I think part of the journey is coming to know God as this infinite spirit in whose presence we come and you bring questions. There's no specific answers, but there is silence. And silence is not the same as no answer. Think about Job and for the hardcore C.S. Lewis fans out there, So We Have Faces, his novel is actually a really good example of this. God just is. But God is also love, so in His way, in a way, in His presence, we can surface all the emotions from joy to sorrow, anger, uncertainty, and still be held. And so God, in a way, is the ultimate other. And of course, God is also embodied in the people and the things we love. You know, God is, in, in Him we live and move and have our being. But the man who was legion is later seen clothed and in his right mind, sitting quietly at Jesus' feet. And I love that posture, and I think he was himself. Hi, everyone. I've been asked by Pastor Wade to um, share a little on what authenticity means to me. And so when I was thinking about this question, I thought I'd share what an authentic relationship with God looks like for me. Um, as someone who has always struggled to be honest with other people, even those very close to me in my life, I've never found it particularly difficult to express my anxieties or weaknesses to God. So in that sense, I've always felt like I've had an authentic relationship with Him. Um, however, about a year ago, I was labeled as an inauthentic Christian um, by a different church. Um, and I don't know if you've ever seen those stickers on goods out in the streets that label them as real and certified. Um, but I kind of felt like I was aiming to get one of those stickers. I was trying to tick as many checkboxes as possible in order to fit into that community and to live up to what that community expected of their members, that I started chasing the approval of the people around me um, instead of pursuing God. I remember there were many sessions after church or fellowship where I would go home in tears because I felt like I was missing the mark. I'd stopped asking questions, genuine questions, um, and instead started telling myself to just stick it out for a little longer um, in the hopes that practice behavior would start to come from a place of genuine intention, but obviously that wasn't the case. I remember at one point I actually started to doubt my relationship with God and its authenticity. I started to question whether or not the experiences I had had with God were real. Um, and this was very scary for me. Um, as you can imagine, if you have your identity as a child of God taken away from you, especially if you're already struggling with your identity as just a person walking on this earth. I've obviously now extricated myself from that situation. Um, and 
I think I've come to a renewed understanding about what being authentic with um, God means to me personally. I might still struggle with questions, but I now realize that as long as I come to God with a genuine heart, um, that matters more than ticking off all the check boxes and what makes me quote unquote real Christian. Um, I'm also very grateful to have had the support of close friends around me to journey with me through my faith. And I found that ironically, I could be more authentic and vulnerable with them than I ever could have been with the previous community of people I was with. In conclusion, as I work on refinding my identity, I put a lot of hope and have a lot of faith in the fact that um, what matters to God is my heart. Um, and that that's what matters to him as I pursue an authentic relationship with him.